Welcome to Body Signals, a Cygnos podcast. I'm your host, Bill Tanser, Chief Data Scientist here at Cygnos. This is Season 4, Episode 6, How to Lose Weight While You Sleep. Top tips from Dr. Sarah Nicole Boston on getting the best sleep to support your weight loss journey. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Boston for a discussion about the behavioral, emotional, and mental aspects of a good night's sleep. Specifically, we'll discuss how a good night's sleep makes it easier to achieve your goals, how it's not just your time in bed, it's also about sleep efficiency, establishing a helpful circadian rhythm, and the five main components of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. This and so much more. Now on to today's show. Welcome back to Body Signals. Based on user request, listener request, we've got Sarah Nicole Boston, Dr. Sarah Nicole Boston, back on Body Signals. We threw a whole bunch of different topics at her that she said she'd love to come back and talk about. And today we're going to talk about sleep. So, Dr. Sarah Nicole Boston, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Bill. It is great. Great to have you. So we're going to be talking about sleep today. How was your sleep last night? Did you get a good night's sleep? It was pretty good. When I sleep well, I sleep really well. And when I don't sleep well, I sleep really not well. (laughs) But it was good. How about you? (laughs) You know, it was, uh, I would say I'm on a trend to better sleep. I've actually been paying a lot of attention to try and improve my sleep. In fact, maybe too much attention, and we'll talk about that a little bit later sure. in the episode. But last night, and this happens to me, um, this is going to sound like we're in session, um, but yeah, around two in the morning, I woke up and it was like instantly awake, and I was thinking, okay, what questions am I going to ask on the podcast about sleep? Maybe I should get a good night's sleep before doing a podcast about sleep. And then, you know, I look at the clock, it's three, three in the morning now. So it's an hour later and I'm still not asleep. So it wasn't that great of a night, but kind of a typical night for me. Oh gosh. Okay. I have some recommendations. We can save those for later though. Yeah. Let's save those for later. So I know the answer to this question, but some of our listeners may be wondering, Okay, this is a weight loss podcast, weight loss and wellness podcast. Why are we devoting an entire episode? And if I have my preferences, maybe a whole series to a discussion on sleep. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, There's a lot of nuanced answers, but let me try and answer this concisely. So what we do during the daytime really strongly uh, influences how we sleep. Um, And there's actually a lot of research studies that have looked at the connection between sleep and metabolism and sleep and weight loss or weight management or even just weight stability and really found that sleep is the critical missing link between um, weight management and health outcomes that people are striving toward. But it's often forgotten about, um, you know, by us, by you and me, by folks, medical providers. Um, So it bears repeating and excited to talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah, I mentioned just a second ago, I've become obsessed with sleep. It's because I noticed personally, just looking at my Cygnos data, what a difference I had in 
my glucose response to a meal based on when I had a good night's sleep and when I had a really poor night's sleep. So, um, yes, there's a lot of interesting things there that are happening with our metabolism. But prior to the call, we were prepping and you sent me this really interesting abstract about um, Oh, yeah, the University and of Pittsburgh article. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy yeah, to talk people, about people that. Sl- I would love to just let's let's briefly go through it because I think this is fascinating. So it was about sleep and people's ability to um, to stick to um, to some lifestyle changes. Yeah, exactly. So there was a study I uh, was recently published and presented, I believe, at the American Association of Heart Health and Cardiologists. And it was a year long study, actually, where they looked at 125 adults who self-identified, um, but also according to you know American standards of BMI, classified as uh, being overweight or uh, living with obesity. They were primarily female, though some uh, male as well. And they wanted to participate. They chose to participate in a 12-month, uh, what's called a lifestyle change program. So it was a behavioral-only weight management program, no medications or supplements. And of course, um, movement and nutrition changes were um, discussed as part of that. But they said, hey, for 12 months, sign me up. I want to do something different with my behavior um, to manage my weight or perhaps lose some weight. And what was really interesting is this was sort of a byproduct of the study because the study was actually to help these 125 adults lose weight. Uh, But what they ended up finding in the data is the adults that reported uh, better sleep or better sleep quality on six different dimensions of sleep that they measured um, actually were better at sticking to their weight loss goals, uh, exercising more, sticking to their um, calorie, not necessarily restriction, but um, calories that they were working with a nutritionist to maintain nutritional density of foods they were choosing throughout the day. Um, So that was really surprising, I think, for a lot of people realizing that how well you sleep can actually influence how well you do at losing weight. And interestingly, the way these researchers measured sleep, it's actually a little bit different than most of us think about sleep. It's not just duration. So how long you're in bed for, that's actually one tiny part of sleep health, but actually um, how regular you are with your sleep. So going to bed at the same time and waking up roughly at the same time every day is one part of it. Um, Perceived satisfaction. So how well do we feel like we slept and how do we feel when we wake up? Um, Also sleep efficiency, which is sort of the golden rule among clinical health psychologists like myself, sleep efficiency. Do you know what that is, Bill? Am I preaching to the choir here? Oh, I know. I I am actually (laughs) a sleep geek. You would probably not be surprised at the different things that I'm analyzing in my own sleep. So yeah, totally. But maybe for our listeners, because some some people listening may not be as geeky as I am, although the questions I'm getting for listeners, I'm thinking some might actually be more. But let's just assume some people might need some definitions here. Sure, sure. So another aspect of sleep that these researchers looked at is something called sleep efficiency. So it's basically a proportion of total time asleep uh, versus total time in bed. So for example, if I go to bed at 10 p.m. and I wake up at 6 p.m., I don't go to bed at 10 p.m. I go to bed closer to midnight. But let's say I went to bed at 10 p.m. and woke up at 6 a.m. and I slept that whole entire time, that would be 100% sleep efficiency because the whole entire time I was in bed, uh, I was actually sleeping 
for most of us, our sleep efficiency is not 100%. It's closer to like 80%. And in fact, insomnia is identified as sleep efficiency on more nights than not being under about 70, 75%. And so that's something that we can actually change through our behaviors and kind of the, the way we moderate our sleep environment, which I can talk about. But anyway, that was some of the things these researchers were looking at is the different aspects of sleep that influence uh, weight loss and being more successful in people's health goals. And it's kind of what they found is that sleep regularity, the timing of your sleep, sleep efficiency, all of these play a really big role in addition to sleep duration um, for, for how well people can maintain their weight goals and their metabolic health. Wow. I mean, that's just so fascinating. And now I'm a little concerned because if uh, some of the, I've used like three different tools to measure my sleep and my efficiency, depending on which tool you look at, is actually between like 70 to 76%. Although I wonder. Well, it's <laughs> See, it's not. I, I've got it now. I have to, <laughs> I've got to be over 76% now. Um, I think also. Yeah, we're going to definitely talk about that. Part of it also has to do with impairment, what we call, you know, perceived level of impairment. So if someone has a sleep efficiency of 75% and they feel like, hey, I'm cognitively intact and I'm sharp at work and I'm able to do all the things that my life requires of me, then we wouldn't necessarily call that a sleep problem or insomnia. But if someone has a sleep efficiency around 70, 75 or under percent, and they are reporting, you know, perceived struggling, then that would be something we'd want to look at. So it's, it's the data, but it's also someone's lived experience um, do matter a lot. And relatedly, there's a different research study, but there are many other research studies looking at cortisol levels and how lack of sleep raise our cortisol levels. And this is not like your 75% sleep efficiency. This is like, you know, the people that only sleep four hours a night and say like, oh, I'm fine. I'm able to perform fine. And I drive forklifts all day long. Um, they've actually found that their cortisol levels are very high. Um, and what happens is they have higher blood glucose. Um, they tend to develop insulin resistance over time. Um, and all of this can lead to weight instability or even things, um, like type 2 diabetes, which we know aren't super great for our health. So those are some other kind of physiological um, mechanisms that sleep is involved in. Yeah, I, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's interesting you say that with a cortisol release because that mimics what I've seen. And for those listeners that are Cygnos members, I want to make a suggestion for you. And this will only work if you have... Uh, uh, the same breakfast every morning, or if your first meal, maybe you you skip breakfast and you have lunch. If you have this, yeah, if you have this exact same meal, and I'm not going to say what it is because I've mentioned this meal in every single podcast, uh, all 38 episodes, I believe. But if you have the same meal every single morning at the same time, mark down in your notes when you've had a good night's sleep and a poor night's sleep, and look at the difference. For me personally, the difference can be as high as 30 to 40 milligrams per deciliter in terms of the spike I get from that breakfast just when I had a poor night's sleep. And it's probably because of that circulating cortisol is, is causing a greater spike, which then also usually spikes insulin as well, which we want to keep that to a minimum. So if you don't believe us, do this test yourself and you might be surprised. I did it very early on. We're talking like two years ago 
at Cygnos. And this is what caused me to pay so much attention to sleep and become a sleep geek while also being a glucose geek at the same time. And eat the same breakfast every morning like Bill does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I'm actually experimenting with some other breakfasts just so I can talk about it. And uh, this is for another episode, but some fascinating (laughs) things when you switch from the same breakfast you've had every single day. It's actually taken my body a little while to catch up to this new mm-hmm. breakfast. It's actually thinking that I'm having what I've had before and, mm-hmm. and releasing uh, glucose and insulin, I believe, in anticipation of what I normally have, which is causing all mm-hmm. sorts of crazy data. But we'll save that for another really episode. Interesting. Well, so very quickly it's, related to that because it just pinged something in my brain. So as far as like when we eat too um, is very important on our sleep. And there's something um, perhaps you've spoken with some other experts on your on your podcast, I'm sure, about circadian rhythms. Um, is this old news to our listeners? It is not old old news, um, but it has come up. Go ahead and and and, um, and talk a little bit about circadian rhythm. I might interrupt you with some some fun facts yeah, that we've yeah. learned from so, previous guests. Sure. So circadian rhythms for anyone who's curious, it's basically our body's internal thermostat. Um, it's called our sleep wake cycle. It's basically the twenty four hour sleep wake pattern that our bodies, human beings bodies want to be following. And there's some really interesting um, research looking at basically um, glucose patterns also follow these circadian rhythms, our natural sleep-wake cycles. And so it's interesting because typically folks' glucose will drop at night when it's dark outside in anticipation of, hey, you should be sleeping right now. That's, That's what your body's expecting you to be doing. And then it's interesting because when we're kind of getting ready to wake up, let's say 4, 5, 6 a.m., people experience it sometimes referred to as the dawn effect, like a quick spike in their glucose because the body's actually priming itself for daylight outside and in anticipation of using energy, which is what glucose spikes help us to do. Glucose is our you know, body's main source of energy. So it's interesting because um, sleep health also has a lot to do with what we eat and when we eat and really eating by what's called your circadian rhythm or your body's internal clock. So basically eating when it's daylight outside and then trying our best as much as possible to not eat when it's dark uh, outside, which can be very difficult in the winter time. If you live somewhere and it gets dark at 3 PM, most of us don't want to have dinner at 3 PM, but technically that would be the way to eat according to your body's circadian clock and really optimize your metabolic stability. Yeah, absolutely. And we actually discussed circadian rhythm last on an episode, uh, actually this season, just two episodes ago with um, Sarah Steele, who's one of our metabolic coaches. And we were discussing, when I, th- this is something I, I didn't understand until I really started to read all of the research. But initially, I thought the circadian rhythm was all in our brain. But then, uh, you know, we discovered that actually every organ we have has its own circadian clock. And then uh, Sarah shared some research with me that it, it goes down to the microbiota and each individual cell, each individual bacterium has its own uh, circadian clock. And one of the other things that gets disrupted is when we eat off of a, a, a rhythm that our, our, our circadian clock and our microbiome's circadian clock is on, you get... Um, this mismatch between when the microbiome is ready to help you digest something 
and when you're eating. So if you, you, you have that late night meal, that 10 p.m. meal, and the sun set at 7, there's a good chance that a part of your gut's not ready to digest the food properly, which can lead to some sleep problems, which then becomes just a, a vicious circle. Yep, definitely. It's really fascinating. It, and, it, and I will say it's very hard to stop eating when it gets dark outside. I mean, this is something like <laughs> nighttime well, popcorn with Netflix, something I still struggle with. You know, I, it's, it's, I'm going to admit this. I, I can't believe I'm going to admit this on, 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 the, on air. But um, my sleep schedule has changed and my eating schedule, too. I'm eating like a 70-year-old at this point where I am eating like my dinner like at four or five. And then I stop eating. And now, because I want to get seven hours, and maybe we should get into this at some point in sleep hygiene later in the podcast, but I'm going to sleep at like 9.30 because I wake up at five and sometimes have that like hour or two in the middle. So my sleep efficiency is not great, but uh, at least I'm getting the seven hours. So we'll, we can talk about some sleep hygiene tips when we get a little bit further down. But before we get there... I want to talk with you about the mental aspects of sleep. And I'm going to start just with my own personal story. So here I am starting uh, at Cygnos. Uh, very early on, I notice how important sleep is. I become obsessed with sleep so much to the point that it's actually disrupting my sleep, how obsessed I am with sleep. And it was, it was, uh, it was not a, good thing. I, I could tell that at one point I just stopped looking at all sleep data. I felt like I had to because I was getting so neurotic about the fact that I didn't think I was getting sleep. So I wonder if you've come across this is, is being, you're all, you are our, um, our behavioral head of our behavioral change, uh, department, but you're also a health psychologist. So as the health psychologist putting that hat on, is this, um, is this something that uh, could be solved by addressing some of the mental aspects of sleep? So it's interesting. I really love this question because it just so closely mirrors the experience of being a health psychologist and often um, meeting with patients, let's say, when they have a really significant sleep problem or they've had a sleep problem that's developed and they just haven't reached out to get some you know, help or tips or tricks to, to manage it. And it's interesting because everybody's a little confused. Like, why am I meeting with a psychologist? I'm not worried. It's not mental. I just can't stay up in the middle of the night. So I'll actually push back a little bit on that and say it's probably more behavioral for most people than it is mental. Um, but, but health psychologists sort of deal with both. And so we can kind of walk through, like, what are the ways that, that you manage when you wake up in the middle of the night or if anyone is struggling with their sleep? I'll say it's both. I'll yeah. say it's probably so less mental. A question. I have, I have a question based on that. So Shoot. when you say it's not mental, it's behavioral, I... I um, Sorry, this may be an ignorant question, but I kind of think of those as being the same thing. So how is behavioral different than mental? So mental are things that I would consider mental things that are not observable. So they're internal experiences, things like our thoughts and emotions, things that are happening. They are events, but no one can observe them. We, we can experience them. We can report on them ourselves. 
Um, but unless someone is living in your body with your exact experience, they wouldn't know what your what your cognitive or your emotional experiences are. Whereas behavioral, if if I was a fly on the window watching a patient sleep, what would they actually be doing that I could monitor, that we could video record in a non-creepy way, um, that we could measure, <laughs> that we could ask them to manipulate or change their behavior around? It's the things that... Um, are happening in the external world that are observable. Does that help address Got kind you. of the, yes. the that that explains a lot. Uh, and I, I'm sorry for that question if it was just a dumb question, but no, it's a really um, good that question. really helps. People are always very confused. Like, yeah, we get confused. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, it's a great question. I, I think it's important, and I will say they're both important to address. But for some people with their sleep problems it might slate very heavily behavioral. And for some people with sleep problems, it might slate much more on the cognitive and the emotional side. And the really nice thing is um, what we call evidence-based treatments, behavioral treatments um, for sleep or for insomnia. They actually address both. And you can kind of um, focus on the areas that someone is struggling with a little bit more. But I can also kind of run through the components of what that would look like if it's helpful. Right, right. So, you know, if if we're talking about the two different issues, if it's more mental, then you you know might be dealing with just some talk therapy about you know what, like when I wake up at two o'clock and there's just all these thoughts going through my head, that would be more mental. Where behavioral might be just some things you can do, operant conditioning, other things. I don't know, behavioral yeah, so stuff to help with sleep. Still wouldn't say talk therapy uh, because there are certain triggers to even those mental aspects of thoughts that people have around their sleep or worries when they wake up in the middle of the night. And there's really specific, we call them cognitive behavioral tools that we can um, help people use and help people learn how to use in the middle of the night or getting ready when they're going to bed. And if they're thinking about the what's happening at work the next day, there's really specific tools that we can help people with. Whereas talk therapy, it's, it's much more around kind of open-ended supportive counseling, which is super wonderful, certainly has a place. Um, but with sleep problems in particular, even if it's more mental or more emotional, I wouldn't necessarily recommend talk therapy. I would recommend what's called um, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And so it addresses those mental aspects in a very um, particular way. So if I were to seek out uh, a psychologist to help me with CBTI, the cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, what would it look like? Just kind of walk me through what kind of things um, I might be doing with that psychologist. Yeah, that's a really great question that I'm happy to answer. So there's kind of five uh, main components of CBTI, um, and I can walk us through. Um, but most of them are actually behavioral. I think like four of them you'd probably put in a more behavioral category, and one of them you'd put more in the kind of mental category. So one is stimulus control. Um, and this is like literally going back to everybody's probably heard of the experiment with Pavlov, Russian guy and his dog, and he'd ring the bell and the dog would start salivating. And then even before he would bring the food in, when the dog would see Pavlov walk through the door, he had made that really strong association that the bell's going to ring. That means food's going to come. Therefore, I should go run over to my owner right now. And it's, it's sort of funny to reduce human behavior, something as important as sleep, 
um, to associations in this way and operant conditioning and operant learning. Um, but it's a really big part of sleep and how good we are at sleeping. So stimulus control is basically kind of those same principles with Pavlov and his dog, where we want to extinguish any negative associations between the bed and undesirable outcomes like worrying or frustration or kind of being awake. So this has to do with um, how we condition people's responses to bed um, and, and just kind of controlling the environment a little bit more tightly. So if someone's really worried and they can't sleep at night, what stimulus control means is we would actually ask that person to get out of bed, go worry somewhere else, go make that association of worry on your dining room chair or make it on your couch or make it downstairs or on your staircase. Don't make it lying down in bed because the more you are experiencing worry or any negative state while you're in bed, if you're having an argument with a loved one or with a friend, or you're watching the news or violent TV or something really activating, all of those are associations that our brain is pairing with the bed that whether we realize it or not can start to impair our sleep. So that's what stimulus control basically means. Again, highly behavioral. It's like whatever's happening in bed make sure it has to do with sleep. There's sort of a cardinal rule in CBTI and in um, sleep treatment, which is the bed should only be used for sleep and sex, shouldn't be used for snacking, shouldn't be used for ironing your clothes, anything else you're doing, take it somewhere else. That's, that's basically what stimulus control is. Um, another one is sleep restriction, which is People don't love this one, but it works really, really well. Probably um, one of the best mechanisms of treating insomnia and sleep problems. And it's paradoxical because sleep restriction involves limiting someone's time in bed um, when they can't sleep. And so we're actually what we're doing. If someone can't sleep, if I go to bed at 11 p.m. and I can't sleep till, I don't know, 3 a.m. And that's happening pretty consistently. If I were to go to a health psychologist, what sleep restriction means is they would give me a prescription for a new bedtime. And my new bedtime would actually be 3 a.m. And you would say, wait a minute, they're telling you to go to bed later, but you're already not sleeping. But what happens with sleep restriction is if you now follow this new bedtime, which is basically only go to bed, only allow yourself to sit in your bed and lie down and turn off the lights when you know you're already falling asleep anyway. What happens is it drives up our physiological, what's called our sleep drive, um, and it re resets kind of our circadian rhythm. And so over time, yes, we're incurring some tiredness and some sleep debt in the short term, but in about a week or two, our body resets. And what happens is then your provider can tell you to move up that bedtime by 30 minutes every couple days. And before you know it, in about two or three weeks, now when I go to bed at 11 p.m., I'm actually going to be falling asleep at 11.30 p.m. because I've shifted my bedtime very methodically over time, even though initially I was very tired. So again, very behavioral, but that's what sleep restriction um, basically means. And I'll pause here. Do you have any questions so far about stimulus control or I, sleep restriction? Well, stimulus control, I am so glad you mentioned that because I think what's happened, especially for a lot of our listeners that listen to a lot of wellness podcasts and read a lot of wellness con uh, content, they've gone out and bought blue light glasses and they sit on their bed because they have the blue light glasses on. They think that they can be on their phones. They can consume as much activating content as possible and then still expect to fall asleep. And what 
The point that you've made, which I think is so important for our listeners to hear, is that it's not a, it's not necessarily just the blue light you um, you should be worrying about. When that uh, when you put those glasses on, you're not giving yourself a free pass then to consume all that content in your bed because you're going to make the association with whatever that thing is that's activating you with where you sleep. And that's probably going to be detrimental to your your sleep. So I'm so glad that you mentioned that. That uh, the sleep schedule thing, I've I've actually heard of this before. I tried it for a while and it did help with me waking up in the middle of the night by pushing my my bedtime from 930 up to like midnight. I stopped waking up at 2. Um, I don't know why I went backwards and started sleeping at nine thirty again. I don't know, but that that try. does make sense. Yeah, I should probably go back and revisit that. Although, um, and I don't know if you've heard of this, but I was just reading. I think it was in Matthew Walker's book. He talked about um, if we go back historically, a lot of humans actually had a sleep schedule where they would sleep from like nine in the night till one in the morning. They'd be up for an hour or two and then go back to sleep. That it's actually was considered a normal sleep pattern. And that has somewhat gone away. But maybe yeah. some of us still have that in our, our genes or in, I don't know. There is some really good research indicating we are sort of evolutionarily wired. Like as our glucose patterns are changing and as we're in different stages of sleep, some people do wake up in the middle of the night and it's just, you need to go to the bathroom or you're thirsty or you have some other physiological cue. And that's perfectly fine. We don't even consider that problematic. If someone is staying awake for more than an hour and struggling to fall back asleep, then we would say, okay, there's something problematic going on here. But waking up in the middle of the night, you know, of itself once or twice, even for 30 minutes is perfectly normal. So I think that's something that people should be aware of too. And, and with insomnia, there's usually two kinds that, that they've been classified as two kinds, right? There's sleep onset and then sleep maintenance. So sleep onset, if you just go to bed and you're, you're just up and you can't fall asleep, maybe then you prescribe that change in sleep schedule to to help with onset. The maintenance is more the issue I, that I, I face of that waking up in the middle of the night. But as you mentioned, maybe this is completely natural. And I've heard the advice. This must have come from some behavioralists of when you, you know, are up maybe 30 minutes and you notice you're not falling asleep, get out of bed, go somewhere else. 100%. I would yes. agree. Yes. And, and that might be because you're thinking about things that are non-sleep related. So go think about that somewhere else. And when you're ready to go back to sleep so that you build that association, then go back to the bedroom and go to sleep. Exactly. And that comes to, so I mentioned there were kind of five active ingredients in um, CBT for insomnia or, or just in general, you don't even have to have insomnia to, to do this kind of work. It can really help with people's metabolic stability and glucose and weight management goals. So just kind of keep that in mind. If you say, Hey, I think I have pretty good sleep efficiency. I don't think I have a sleep problem. It still might be um, worth engaging in this, in this type of work to improve our glucose and our metabolic health. Um, but the third active ingredient here is really reducing arousal in bed, which um, William and I, Dr. Dixon, we joke that this has like a very bad name because people people are like, what do you mean methods to reduce arousal in bed? But essentially, um, it's it's relaxation training is is what it's referring to. So we really want to teach people to use various relaxation strategies like progressive muscle relaxation, 
guided imagery, biofeedback, slow abdominal breathing um, to lower any physiological or cognitively um, aroused states that they're in that might be interfering not only with the onset of sleep for those insomnia sleep onset folks, but also with the maintenance of sleep. So like for you, Bill, in the middle of the night, if you're waking up and you're finding yourself thinking about who you're going to interview on your podcast the next day, this would be a really prime time to practice some relaxation strategies um, or some diaphragmatic breathing, um, heart rate variability, biofeedback, for example, and really see the influence it has on lowering your autonomic nervous system and your physiology and hopefully getting you back to sleep. So that's another big strategy for managing sleep. Excellent. So that's number three. How about our number four? Yeah. So, so this is where so far, would you not agree with me that the first three are behavioral? Do they, do they not sound behavioral to you? Yes, they are 100% behavioral. So st- stimulus control, right? Like what we're get literally yep. just getting, getting out of bed, right? Um, sleep restriction, kind of when we're going to bed and setting our bedtime and then reducing our arousal or our activation in bed um, with relaxation training, which again is done through our breathing. It can be done through muscle tension, biofeedback. Um, it can be done through people like meditations. It can be done through meditation, but very much things we're asking people to do um, in the world that is observable. So, so very behavioral. Um, I'll, I'll skip really quickly to the fifth one. The fifth one is what's called sleep hygiene, and that's also very behavioral. So sleep hygiene refers to healthy lifestyle practices that improve sleep. I'm generally a proponent that sleep hygiene is a little bit overhyped only because the research shows as it relates to mechanisms of actually moving the needle and improving sleep as it relates to metabolic health and glucose. Um, Sleep hygiene is great. It's low hanging fruit. It's free. People can easily change their environment, um, but it's not going to move the needle as much as um, stimulus control or sleep restriction, but it's still a great thing. So sleep hygiene really gets to, you know, are you drinking coffee before bed? Yeah, sleep hygiene has to do with all the things we want to create a pleasant sleep environment. And this can be like burning some incense or a candle. It can be like making sure we have the blackout curtains, but it's also what we put in our bodies as it relates to going to sleep. So when is the last meal we had? If we tend to eat past our circadian rhythm, you know, we had the uh, example earlier, like if you're eating dinner at 10 p.m., you're eating against your circadian rhythm and you're eating when your body and your brain are expecting you to be asleep. And so that's actually going to raise glucose um, and it's going to create some metabolic instability when we're trying to go to bed and it's going to interfere with sleep. So sleep hygiene also has to do with moving our dinner up a little bit earlier and maybe eating uh, more nutrient dense foods for dinner before going to sleep such that our body can process that more efficiently and, and kind of help us go to bed. Um, so sleep hygiene tends to be the fun things. That's why people like to focus on, on them. Um, it is important and definitely make sure your toilets work so it doesn't smell in your bed at sleep hygiene. Um, you know, and the other, the fifth piece here just for time is the mental piece. It's, it's what we would call cognitive therapy. It's the C in CBTI. Um, and really what it addresses is the thoughts that people are having that contribute to and can sustain any unhealthy emotions as it relates to stress management or sleep or what they're thinking about or sort of what's on their mind. And this really involves, um, 
looking at any kind of anxiety related thoughts or depression related thoughts or just unhelpful thoughts people might be having um, around bedtime, right before bedtime or around bedtime or thoughts that are waking them up in the middle of the night, emotions that are waking them up in the middle of the night um, and basically challenging them, looking at how helpful or unhelpful they are. Um, And if they are helpful thoughts, maybe making some space for them through strategies like acceptance and mindfulness to recognize, okay, this is an important thought for me to be worrying about. And at the same time, maybe this is something I jot down on a notepad next to my bed and I deal with this tomorrow because it doesn't need to be dealt with right now. So the cognitive piece um, has to do with how we manage our activating emotions and our thoughts that get in the way of sleeping. So that's the only mental piece. And I think that's that's an important one you brought up because I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but in a case like that, like if you're struggling with anxiety or other emotional issues, the insomnia might just be a symptom of that larger problem that needs to be addressed. No matter what you do, if you still have um, some some issues with anxiety, that might keep you up regardless of of others, or maybe not. Maybe maybe it, it's it's a little bit more murky than that. But that's kind of the way I've always thought about it. Yeah, a lot of these things tend to, we we call them in sort of the medical bubble, have high comorbidity. So they tend to occur a lot together. So you can have really Mm -hmm. bad sleep and have a problem managing your weight, or you can have really bad sleep or poor metabolic health or diabetes. You can have really bad sleep and be really anxious. So it also depends on what is more important for someone. Are they really struggling with worry, in which case maybe we need a little bit more of the C than the B, or are they really struggling with sleep and finding themselves, you know, falling asleep at work, uh, having difficulty maintaining an engaging conversation with a friend after work. And if that's the problem, maybe it's more of the B, the behavioral stuff we need to be working on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting. I considered some things that um, I had labeled hygiene actually, I think are behavioral. So I, I was going to argue with you about the uh, hygiene and whether or not they worked, but probably one of the most important things to me is sticking to that sleep schedule, but that's behavioral. I always thought of that as just a hygiene thing. So that's interesting for me personally. I do uh, kind of both. Okay. It's kind of both. I think sticking to a schedule is just on the surface level, considered very much like a sleep hygiene practice. But when we talk about Mm -hmm. sleep restriction, that's a very specific type of uh, practice around when we go to bed and when we wake up. And that typically has to do with looking at what are the periods that we are laying in bed and not sleeping. And then rather than trying to go to bed at that time, shifting the clock way up and only even getting in bed at the time we actually feel like we're basically knocking out. Um, So so it's a little bit more nuanced. Than, than kind of keeping the regular schedule, but it's both. Yes. I, I remember reading this really interesting study where they took college students and uh, one cohort, they, um, they had them adhere to a sleep schedule. I don't know how you do that with college students, but they did. And the other half, they just let them sleep whenever they wanted to sleep. And the ones that adhered to a sleeping schedule in that group, they actually got much better grades than the ones that were sleeping whenever they wanted to sleep. Kind of makes sense when you back up and you think about it. Uh, But to me, that was what drove me to really pay attention to sleep schedule and try and go to sleep and wake up at the exact same time every day. 
So I wonder, even though um, they may not move the needle, are there certain sleep hygiene practices that you found have worked? I know I have a few. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think in terms of like what's good sleep hygiene practice, you know, not drinking coffee, you know, three, four hours before bed and not having excessive liquids is a really good sleep hygiene practice. Um, you know, just making sure we have a good environment for sleep, whatever that means for every single person. For me, it means like having darkness and not having ambient light coming in from the hallway. Some people like to have night lights in their room. I don't recommend it uh, because, again, we're kind of working against our circadian clock and we want it to be dark in our bedroom just like it is outside because that's what our body and our brain is expecting. So making sure it's dark, making sure it's quiet. Um, those are kind of the things for me that are big ones. And then also not having dinner too late is a, is a really big one for metabolic health and weight management and also sleep hygiene. And I think sometimes that can fall for, by the wayside for people. Like I had a really busy day. I want to make sure I get my workout in, or I want to make sure I meet up with a friend and then they don't plan ahead for meal prepping or things like that. And they might have dinner, you know, order takeout, let's say at 8.30. And I think that's a, not an ideal sleep hygiene practice, if possible. Yeah. And for me, I think one that was the most impactful was uh, sleep temperature. So mm -hmm. I invested in one of those pads that cools uh, the mattress down to like 55, 60 degrees, which at first I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to sleep. Uh, at that type of a temperature, but my deep sleep went way up according to the different tools I'm using to measure sleep. So that worked for me. I've heard from others, though, it didn't work. I think a lot of these uh, sleep hygiene things, so the reason why we're not getting great uh, data confirming that they actually work is that they're very personal, I believe. Mm -hmm. The other one um, that I think goes to circadian rhythms, so this might cross over um, from just being a sleep hygiene practice, but the idea of, uh, getting up and then going outside and actually getting the morning light, light on my yeah. eye and, you know, having my coffee then also doing the exact same thing at sunset. So going outside, going for a short walk at sunset, just to get, um, the, the spectrum of light that you get at those two different times I had read, the studies aren't that strong, but I, I had read a few of them that said that this helps you set your circadian rhythm to help with sleep. And it may be a placebo effect, but I found that it, it worked for me to do those two things. Yeah, and if nothing really else, it got me outside, right? And got me walking, which is another thing that's sure. just great to do. And I'm sure it's not placebo effect because it's really what our body is expecting is that during the daylight, that's when we should be using up our glucose and using up our energy and going on walks. I mean, there's this is probably for another podcast, but there's such an evolutionary mismatch between the way we live our lives today and the way human beings live their lives, you know. 2000 years ago or whatnot, and everything is automated. So we just expend a lot less energy and we tend to live more sedentary lives. And that's nobody's fault. It's just the environment, the, the new environment of, you know, the 21st century that we live in. So we just have to make sure that we are putting our body in the conditions that it was designed to be in at the right times to make sure that we um, manage our metabolic health and our weight and our sleeping well. Yes, absolutely agree. Any parting thoughts before we sign off? So many parting thoughts. Gosh, 
I think don't underestimate for anyone struggling with their sleep. Don't underestimate to the, the power of relaxation training and your breath, which is with you all the time. One of the easiest practices I have found for people that wake up in the middle of the night and have difficulty maintaining their sleep is just to put one hand on their chest and one hand on their stomach and breathe, not necessarily as deeply as you can, because on every inhale, folks are activating their sympathetic nervous system, their fight, flight, or freeze. And what we actually want is to activate our parasympathetic nervous system, which is also called our rest and digest side. So we want to take roughly a four-second inhale abdominally and a six-second exhale and just count and just count for five minutes, 10 minutes, um, and you'll find that you'll tend to fall asleep much faster than you think. Also a big one related to sleep hygiene. Don't watch the clock if you can't sleep or if you wake up in the middle of the night, um, because that's definitely a sleep interfering behavior as well that wouldn't recommend. Well, my parting thought, Dr. Boston, is that we need to have you on again, because I think we've just scratched the surface of some of this. I'm sure that I'm going to get some comments from our listeners that want us to go deeper And we would love to have you on again to talk more about sleep. Yeah, happy to field any questions. Thank you again for having me. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Body Signals. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to our feed. Also, please share this episode with your friends. For those of you who are not yet Cygnos members, go to Cygnos.com, S-I-G-N-O-S.com, and use the code BODYSIGNALS, all one word, to get your 15% discount on Cygnos. We look forward to seeing you on our next episode of Body Signals.